This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is November 2nd, 2023. I'm Scott Lundbaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Feeling increasingly sinusy pressure. I recorded Canby Report with Matthew earlier today, and it went great. I was feeling great for that. But sometime between like 3 p.m. and 6 p.m., my head was just like, we're going to crash. So we're going to power through today's show, which is a good one. We get to talk about exciting housing bills. It's our favorite thing. Uh, as well as people dying uh, and the carbon tax falling It's not apart. our favorite thing. No, we don't like either of those other two things. But the housing bill is really good. Uh, and if you like our show, patreon.com slash politicoast. Let's talk about this. This is the bill we've been waiting for and that we've been promised pretty much since David Eby ran for leader and that they've been looking at for so long. The we're going to upzone the entire province, caveat in that for a second, and we'll come back to and let people build multiplexes everywhere. Single family zoning is being abolished in cities across BC. Yeah, so this applies to every municipality greater than 5,000 people or the smaller ones that are attached to a larger uh, metro region. So it covers pretty much everywhere where most people live. And like you said, it's basically the no more single family zoning bill. So uh, as part of this, it is going to, at a bare minimum, uh, require that uh, it's going to allow a minimum of uh, three homes on a lot if uh, it's less than 280 square meters or four if it's above there. That's Uh, 3,000 square feet for people who, like me, can't think in two units at once. (laughs) Areas are annoying because the uh, the math gets a little on the conversions gets a little more complicated. Um, but yeah, that uh, covers pretty much every standard lot in Vancouver. Uh, also, a lot of lots in Vancouver are going to be covered by the allowance for up to six units uh, where there is frequent transit service, uh, which I believe they're using a fifteen minute uh, frequency for, which. That's pretty much every bus line in Vancouver. Yeah, Uh, this is like the first criticism of the bill is a lot of the details aren't in the legislation itself. It's going to come out in the regulations after it's passed, but they're leaking these right away because everyone wants to know. So yeah, if your single family house is within 400, if your single family house is within 400 meters of a bus stop that has buses come every 15 minutes, so not mine, I only get a 30 minute bus in my neighborhood, but Pretty much the rest of the lower mainland gets better bus service. You can build six units. Yeah, and there's also uh, another bill that has been teased that's uh, not uh, been introduced yet that's going to uh, further enact some transit-related zoning changes. So, uh, like, tip of the iceberg on this, but uh, it's also a pretty big iceberg that's uh, coming through here because that is... A significant step up in terms of what like the baseline zoning is for the province. 
So this doesn't come into effect overnight. All the municipalities have to go through and update their zoning by the end of June. And as part of that, we're expecting regulations that come in on the really wonky details that actually really matter. Things like what is the floor space ratio? Because it's one thing if you can build four units. It's another if they're only 200 square feet each, right? We actually need homes that people can live in. So how dense can you build? How big of a multiplex can you build on these will really matter. And it sounds like in December, we'll get those details. And that will require all of the municipalities to start updating their zoning. Yeah, that's really important. Because, you know, BC is not the first place that is trying kind of provincial or state level zoning. And what happened in California when they did this is they basically needed to do a a series of whack-a-mole on it where they pass a rule and then the uh, various municipalities would enact other rules that would make it uh, uneconomical to actually build anything to the new law. Uh, so it took like a couple watts at it before, say, the uh, the ADU or, or laneway houses in California really managed to take hold. So having the province uh, look at all of those other things is going to be critical to actually making sure this is a success. Speaking of laneway houses, this bill does a lot more. It also immediately legalizes secondary suites and laneway houses in all single-family residential zones province-wide. So a few cities were still holding out on those secondary suites, and now you can start to build those. So if you if you want to have an Airbnb, this is where they can go. We have now legalized those uh, houses to build Airbnbs, or they could rent them out as units. Um, But in either case, there's also a fund that was mentioned previously by the government to help you establish secondary suites. So the government has banned you from owning investment properties unless it's on the lot that you live on, and then you can just put it in your house as a standalone suite. It's still an improvement. It's still more housing, even if some of them do go to Airbnbs, which I guess, you know, some people might need to come see Taylor Swift when she comes here next year, because that was just announced. Big news. David E.B. is very happy he's taking credit. He actually did. Jokingly. That's not all this bill does. The bill also massively reforms the public hearing process and basically the entire approach to how cities have to plan. So there, right now, the province has required municipalities develop housing needs reports, but they've been kind of a mess. And so this is now going to require a new updated, standardized, consistent, robust housing need report that looks over the next 20 years for every municipality. And they will need to start working on those and have those done by the end, by January 2025. Once they have those housing needs reports, they also need to align their official community plans every five years with their housing need reports so that they actually can build the houses that they need to meet their uh needs and as far as that alignment uh they have to uh pre-zone for that so like actually put the zone put it into zone and bylaws and not have these dumb ways that a bunch of the cities have been doing it now which is a hey we'll consider rezoning under this framework but you actually have to come to us and like go through a whole process no it's like bylaws now have to meet that and it has to be set out for the next 20 years worth of uh housing needs to be zoned for which Big improvement there. Arguably, you might want to uh, have a little more slack in the system, but uh, 
it's definitely a good start. And finally, with that, there are no more public hearings for one-off projects that fit within the official community plans. So once you've written your community plan that fits your housing needs report, those houses can just be built with like the standard permits. They don't have to go through city council and like a four-stage process that takes multiple meetings and back and forth. It's just the city has said you can build this here, so you can build it here, which I think is how most people think it works. So it should work. It's like actually kind of crazy that we have gotten to the point where that is just the exception rather than the rule. So this is like one of the biggest changes to housing policy in the province. I think it's fair to say in quite a while. Like this is not a small change. This is stuff people have been calling for. And each part of it seems clearly well thought out. And like, you know, we both complained that this has taken so long to see, but I did skim the bill itself. And it's not, it's not a simple bill. There are a lot of changes they had to go through. This is requiring every other municipality in the province to go through a process of updating their own zoning bylaws. Uh, and I get why they had to do it that way. They couldn't just like they, I guess they could just abolish zoning entirely. I mean, they could. They didn't want to go there, though. Like they get to write, they get to write the laws. They could simply write something along the lines of, uh, you know, any law, uh, provincial or any municipal bylaw that uh, is in conflict with these is hereby like null and void or something. And I don't know, let the lawyers figure out the exact line. But basically, do a hey, if if your law doesn't uh, conform to this, it's just not going to be enforceable and just go from there. I think the risk of that method, which I don't, you know, I I can see the idea of, um, the risk there is you end up with a whole bunch of cities getting themselves into litigation or developers feeling confused, even if it's a clear provincial law, as then there's like these competing standards where one is clearly supreme, but municipal planning departments are in a mess because they're like, well, now we have projects. So at least there's like, an implementation process that's six months long, seven months long here, but it's got a clear goal and endpoint, and we can all get on the same boat sailing the same way in the same amount of time, which is impressive because so far I've heard no criticism of this other than just the, we need a few more details on what exactly the setbacks will be, what will the density be, and those kind of things, but those are coming at least. Yeah, and like, more people or some people wanted to see more around uh you know above and beyond the sits units that uh can be built around trans, uh, the bus network and hopefully there's something well they've uh hinted that there's uh further stuff coming around uh other transit stuff which would be good because yeah you know, 15 minute bus service is fine but if you have a sky train you should be able to build a whole lot more so yeah there's a little criticism around could be more faster, but uh, in terms of the steps taken, yeah, no, it's definitely a big improvement. Over One really interesting well. thing in their press release is they had Jens von Bergman and a number of others come together, these mathematicians and data people, to try to figure out what impact this will have. And they looked at some of the work that's been done in Auckland, New Zealand, where they made similar changes in 2016. Uh, those have been shown to create 20,000 homes over five years. Uh, the wonky group here in BC says the multi the small scale multi unit home changes over the next 10 years could see more than 130,000 new units across the province which is finally getting into the numbers of houses we need to be talking about i think uh, it's 
getting up there. I mean, we, um, what was it? Uh, I'm trying to think back to what the uh, CMHC was, but it was, I think, closer to like 600,000 was needed by uh, 2030, if not more. I still a big uh, step in the right direction, but uh, it just really shows how big the deficit is if you uh, can add 100,000 homes and it uh, is only part part of the way yeah. there. I mean, the other angle of criticism of this will be the challenge that you'll probably hear of people pointing out that, you know, this isn't going to be an overnight solution and there is no overnight solution, right? The houses that come out of this, especially early on, aren't going to be affordable. You're going to take a one and a half or $2 million lot and you're going to have four $800,000 units on it. And it's like, that's better per person, uh, but it's still out of the reach for so many people. Um, but, you know, maybe we're going to crash the market with this and there you go. But like, it's going to take time. It'll open up new rentals and it's all part and parcel of what is clearly a bigger strategy that the government keeps pitching, right? It's homes for people plan that ties in with the Airbnbs coming out and putting things back on the long-term rental market or up for sale. And it ties in with, you know, the investments in transit-oriented development and everything else that's coming through. So we're seeing progress slowly and painfully. We just need to see those actual prices come down and those rents come down. Yeah, that's going to take a little while to uh, happen, but uh, this should go a long way to eventually making that happen. And hopefully uh, there's uh, some further action following on this. But uh, yeah, we've basically, uh, once this app gets through the ledge and uh, gets signed a law, basically single family zone in, in BC will be a thing of the past. And I believe that will make it the first uh, Canadian province to uh, do so, which is big. Except in the you know, mid the small towns like Gibson's is just under 5,000 people, or at least was in 2021. This well, The secondary yes, sweet thing still yes, applies it does, to them, as far it? as I can tell. So fair enough. Everyone can at least have a secondary suite's not quite a duplex, but maybe you could have a laneway house. We, we have densified the province overnight. It, it is still a second yes, family that it can is live a good there, thing. So. A not good thing is the updated death review panel from the BC Coroner Service has released their latest report, and uh, it's bleak. The headline numbers they have in the last month was another 175 people losing their lives to toxic drugs in September, an average of 5.8 per day, which might be a tiny bit down from some of those months we exceeded six per day. Still not, not a good number. Uh, and 13,000 people have died of toxic drugs since April 2016, when the public health emergency was first declared. This panel came forward with four strong recommendations, largely centered around prioritizing safe supply and the need to get clean drugs to people out in many ways outside of the medical system, because right now they point out only 5,000 drug users are actually able to access safe supply in this province out of, they estimate, uh, 225,000 possible people who are at some time trying unregulated substances, they call them. And so those people are at the higher risk of getting fentanyl or, you know, other things mixed in and overdosing, even if it's the first time they've ever used. The province 
did the amazing thing though and this is why i really want to cover it because you know just talking about people dying of overdoses is not news in this province anymore sadly uh the province decided to release a letter to respond to the chief coroner while she was giving her press conference saying no we're not going to do that we're not going to expand safe supply which was petty like i i get saying <laughs> it clearly if you're not going to do it but putting an open letter yeah the juring was uh, i saw journalists tweeting out that they had to yeah, read it unusual. to the coroner because she said i haven't seen that letter yet I kind of like. I kind of get why they were in a rush to put that out, but yeah, doing that during as opposed to immediately after, uh, it's a little untruth at the very least. Feels like. As for the actual policy, like I get the decision not to go with a uh, non-prescription option. Just zooming out, like prescriptions. Uh, generally get applied when, or prescription requirements generally get applied when there's like a significant uh, risk associated with the uh, pharmaceutical being uh, purchased. And, you know, the, the drugs here are definitely come with their set of risks. And, you know, putting aside the, uh, the, um, recreational use and addictions and whatnot like just if you were to just look at the drugs and kind of their risk profile like it would probably not pass any sort of we'll make these over-the-counter type uh analysis so i could see why the government would be very reluctant to uh i don't think it has anything to do with that right because the experts here the experts in drug use in these substances are saying this is what we need because the risk of not doing it is six people dying a day. And that is what we've been having for years now. And it's gotten worse. It's leveled off at least, but six people are dying a day. And so the risk of not doing this is people are going to keep doing drugs and they're doing dangerous ones. The ability to get clean substances out there is so critical and it's just been abandoned like the reason the government i think doesn't want to do it is the reason the bc liberals are or the bc united is taking up this issue is they want to make it a political issue where it's we don't like drug use and we don't like drug dealers and you don't want to be seen as the government who's handing out free drugs because that's still a moral failing and a bad moral thing I'm not sure if it's entirely that simple. Like, just going back to the prescription thing for a moment, like part of the reason why there was a uptick in uh, opioid use disorders was from uh, cases where um, what's the drug? Is it OxyContin? I think it is. That was uh, overprescribed in a lot of uh, places and uh, did not have the uh, due diligence, good prescribing practices and whatnot, and a lot of people um, became addicted to opioids as a result. So like, you, you should definitely look at cases where excessively free or excessively accessible oh, that's a mouthful um, access to opioids caused problems down the road. So it's like not a case where there is 
an uncomplicated cost-benefit analysis on this, uh, on there. Doesn't mean there's not some political hay to be made out of this, but like it's it's a tougher challenge figuring out exactly where that line is being drawn than I think a lot of people uh, want to give it credit I mean, for. The death panel wasn't recommending, you know, just tossing them out like it's Halloween night. There was still going to be a system of like what basically the Drug User Liberation Front, Dolph, was doing where it goes to the people at highest risk who are going to be using regardless. And there is still a mediation. It's just not a medicalized mediation system. But that entire possibility has been shut down, both by the province saying no to even considering anything, and by the cops raiding Delph for, you know, civil disobedient harm reduction actions. And now the BC United is asking for like a full inquiry into how much the government knew about this. The obvious open secret that drug users were giving out free drugs. It's like, I'm shocked the cops took so long to uh, crack down on them, but it was more of a, I think they smelled the political winds that now was the chance they could because they went after this and they went after some uh, mushroom psilocybin dispensaries as well this past week. And I talked about that uh, with Matthew on Camby Report. It's grim. I'm just very, very frustrated by this file. And like the, to say we're in an emergency, but then not do anything emergent <laughs> is one of my most biggest disappointments of this government. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, on that uh, letter, the BC United said that there was also uh, concerns raised about where uh, if any public money had uh, gone to these various organizations. And, you know, I think that's fair. Like you can make an argument for civil disobedience or whatnot, but also, you know, the the government's job is to make sure that the, the funds that it dispenses are being used in accordance with the provincial and federal laws. And it's a fair ask to make sure that that's actually happening, even if you do support the uh, civil disobedience uh, going on. It's maybe shouldn't be the government's job to fund the civil disobedience. So that's, I think, a fair ask on their part. I don't think anyone's actually going to follow through on the government's part on that. But that's uh, the like. That's also worth sure. on the letter. Like, it's not worth following because there's no evidence Dolph killed anyone. If anything, their actions prevented deaths, and the raid on them has further prevented deaths. So, like, this is the case. Well, I, I think the uh, I, I think the threshold for making sure public money is being used in accordance with the laws should be a little high. Or, yeah, the bar shouldn't be. Did it also cause death? I'm saying the threshold should be, is there a public benefit to its use? And the public benefit does not always accord with the law because the law, to, law is not always just or moral. So they should, they can't should change, change the, the federal like, code. <laughs> but like, yeah, the, the government should follow the laws when it's handing out money. And if the opposition thinks that didn't happen, they, they should poke at it because that's what oppositions are there to do. Well, speaking of the opposition, the other thing they're poking at this week heavily is the carbon tax. Following our discussion of Trudeau's decision to seemingly out of nowhere, or I guess because of that one MP. uh, And bad polling. And bad polling. uh, Exempt oil from 
used for home heating from the carbon tax. Uh, they seem surprised that now everyone, everyone has asked for uh, an exemption from natural gas heating as well <laughs> and other heating fuels. Who could have possibly seen this coming other than, well, anyone who thought about how any other player would respond to this? And when I say everyone, we have BC United, obviously. We have the federal conservatives. We have now the federal NDP today have said they support a conservative they, motion to take this off. Yeah, they've gone back to their like 2009 BC NDP at the tats route roots on that uh, the federal ndp was never axed the tax on the carbon tax i think once it's one party yeah well it's not really <laughs> and the premiers of alberta saskatchewan i believe doug ford um a number of others pointed out just that once you weaken your system that you fight your whole career on then people you know they smell blood in the water and they are asking what what was the point of all of this anyway um, BC, the BC NDP have not budged yet. They have said they are still looking at things, and I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a change in policy in BC. I'll be a little bit disappointed. Maybe it will just be for the twenty thousand people or less who use heating oil in the province won't have to pay it. But uh, BC United's proposal is a uh, policy to combat cost of living which is just taking the carbon tax off almost everything. And he said at one point, if the conservatives get elected federally and they kill the carbon tax, he will kill it in BC, which just destroying the legacy you helped build when you were in government last time. Yes, yeah, that's disappointing. The actual plan they float is basically, yeah, take it off of uh, fuel for personal vehicles, gas, diesel, uh, take it off of heating um undo evs carbon tax height so i guess that means like roll back the uh like last round of tax increases on that as well as basically anything that uh goes into uh food all the uh carbon inputs on that so i don't know i guess if you're running like a steel fab or something you might uh, still have to pay the carbon tax but you know not much else would be covered. Yeah, with it's, this. it's keep slashing it. Industrial uses sound like they're still covered, but yeah. Well, not if it's an agricultural in industry. Sure, non-agricultural industrial usages, which there are quite a few mining, uh, LNG extraction, some of those. Although some LNG projects, cement had, making, yeah, there's a bunch, and but some yeah. of those are substantial. So I th and I think it's interesting there, right? Because those are important ones that no one cares about except like the businesses, but they aren't lobbying directly as much. Uh, it's more like people go and fill up their car with gas and are like, oh, I have to pay 15 cents more because of this. Or at least Kevin Falcon is saying they're paying 15 cents more because of that. Um, it's funny to say he would reverse the increases and the planned increases to the carbon tax because part of our deal with the federal government is if we do that, we will get hit with the federal surcharge anyway. The backstop, and so our hikes for now. I yeah, mean, at, the, at the rate it's going, who who knows on that? It might just last a year. It's well, that's the thing is like once you start rolling back one bit of it, there's not really a like principled spot where you can draw the line on any of that. It's it's just going to get chipped away a little bit by a little bit, and like the federal ministers are out, you know, swearing up and down that you know this was a one-off thing, no more, but. uh 
you know, now that everybody sees that it is no longer sacrosanct, there's going to be lobbying, there's going to be pressure for the Nets thing. And if, uh, if home heat and oil is worth taking the carbon tabs off of, why not home heat and natural gas, which if anything is more climate friendly. So it is just a matter of time, as far as I can see, before something else gives way on it. Like politics, they say, is the art of compromise. And so like, every, there is no principled position of where to draw that line, especially now. But it, This also doesn't seem yeah. to be like a compromise position that ends where we are right now either. Yeah. He at least had some people happy when it was applied universally. Now everyone is mad, except maybe a few people in the Maritimes who use home heating oil. They're marginally happier now. It's it's just the change in... So there's all that, right? But the change in BC United's position is the most fascinating, because right, they see the threat posed by the BC Conservatives, who in their modern iteration were born among the anti-carbon tax, anti-climate change, or pro-climate change, I guess, contingent... But the BC Liberals built their climate policy around a carbon tax, around a revenue-neutral carbon tax that was the gold standard of the world to look at. And Yeah, it was great. It's unfortunate when Christy Clark froze it, but uh, yeah, the uh, the Gordon Campbell era on this was great. Hell, you had Andrew Weaver uh, basically um, stand for the uh, BC Liberals throughout that before... He went off and uh, became leader of the Green Party. Um, you had the NDP, yeah, forced into taking this like really like bad position on at the at the tat stuff. Like it just, uh, it, it was a good moment for uh, climate policy in BC, and one that unfortunately just has not had the staying p- power with the uh, the party that got it going. But yeah, like like you're saying, you have the uh, conservatives on their flank chipping away at it, and I don't know. I just have a lot of trouble seeing how BC United actually holds the middle ground on this and manages to find a position that is both acceptable to the uh, urban and suburban seats that they need to win back and the rural seats they're defending. Uh, from the right right because and i just don't think it's possible they need a credible climate plan and they had one before it wasn't perfect you could still criticize it but it was at least credible enough among they could find academics who would back that you know they supported a carbon tax so they have something there but now yeah like like i think they um, spent part of last week in the house arguing against the increase in zev targets like what are you even doing here like, I get there are arguments against it, but what are you doing? I mean, I don't think they know what they're doing. Just on anything, really. Um, like, they've not figured out where their uh, their core value proposition is, and as a result, they're just um, flailing about. Federally, the NDP's move there is interesting. I think it's one that completely lacks principle, but might actually be be the smarter politics like at this point they have they didn't pass this carbon tax right this isn't the federal ndp's carbon tax this is justin trudeau's ta- carbon tax so what do they actually care if it goes down uh and so why not just 
differentiate yourself. Don't tie yourself to the sinking uh, stock when you can at least try to come up with something new. Um, but it's, I find and, it the most interesting, at least. Yeah. In some ways, it's not surprising at all. Like, the um, the carbon tats was always more of like a... It was, well, it was the uh, classic, like, center-right solution to something of you know, harnessing market mechanisms and whatnot. And as a result, like, it's always felt a little um, discordant with uh, some versions of the Liberal Party and definitely the NDP. And you've seen similar proposals have trouble gaining um, a foothold uh, in progressive areas before, like uh, was it Washington State had a couple goes at trying to enact carbon tax, and they got as much pushback from the left there that as they did the right. Um, it's easy to like if you're a progressive who's a, a little skeptical of markets and b um, tends to want to make this like a moral us versus the uh, corporation sort of thing. Uh, it's pretty easy to talk yourself into a, well, don't, you know, put the burden on everyday people, put it on, you know, the big polluters and whatnot. I mean, it doesn't really work out in practice because like the reason all of those companies put out, um, put out those emissions is because they are providing goods and services that people buy, but as a result, it makes it uh, easy for uh, progressives to land on a uh, a different message track and not be one that's uh, particularly enamored with uh, carbon taxes as a solution. But circling back to uh, what's happening federally here with the NDP, I think this is just another sign that the uh, carbon tats is... Uh, going to be taking fire from all directions and where the liberals have drawn the line is not where they will be able to hold it because even the NDP isn't willing to uh, back them in their current uh, carbon tax policies. So uh, they're really they're really going to be feeling the heat and no doubt in a week or two we'll be talking about some other change that's going to be coming down for, as a result of all this political pressure. Maybe the liberals will do something stupid like make this conservative motion to roll back the carbon tax even further a confidence vote. And uh, the NDP will be like, well, let's fucking go. And <laughs> we will have a carbon tax election, which I guess is what Pierre Polyev wants, what some liberals seem to want for some reason. And they're going to get their they're going to get destroyed if that's what they make the but, election but about. Just consider that we have gone through three carbon tax elections in a row now. Uh, this one will be different, but I I God. will point out <laughs> in two of those uh, they lost the popular vote, and um, in the last one, like they basically hung on by the skin of their teeth with like the most po efficient vote possible. I I'm not saying it's a good strategy, Scott. I'm just saying it's a thing that they could do that would be funny. It would be funny. So they should do it for the lols. One other thing Trudeau did uh, recently, not for the lols, I don't think, was he gave our former BC Premier John Horgan a new job. Uh, he has named him an ambassador 
and he disappointed me greatly by naming him to Germany and not to Ireland. But it otherwise sounds like a cushy gig. Yeah, that's the case for a lot of ambassadors, particularly to, like, nice parts of Europe. I will throw out there that, like, Germany is actually a place that's fairly significant. You know, this isn't, like... um, I don't know, ambassador like Denmark, where you just get a hand on Copenhagen all day. Um, there's some actual, like, fairly significant geopolitical uh, it stuff going on that involves Germany, uh, particularly as, like, the biggest player in Europe when Europe is uh, facing a uh, new security situation uh, that's only, like, a year and a half old at this point. So there will definitely be a bunch of stuff on the energy file security and whatnot that uh, our ambassadors going to have to deal with. So going to be an interesting one for hoarding. It's uh, one that's no doubt going to come with some actual responsibility, not just uh, a fun uh, Europe posting. And he joins the ranks of Gordon Campbell, who was previously named ambassador to uh, the United Kingdom. The UK. So the trend of two continues and that has been playtoast find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca support the show and get access to our slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast our intro music credit is beautiful british columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. playtoast is a production of legend boot media and editing services are provided by chly 101.7 fm in nanaimo thanks for listening Thank you.